I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design with a conversation about design houses, collaborative partnerships, and second careers. All things you have heard on the show before, but not like this. Marilyn Damore started her career doing business development with some of the biggest names in accounting and finance. Her desire for something greater led her back to school to study interior design at Parsons, the new school for design. Our conversation covers that journey, as well as her experience growing up in Haiti, where they are no strangers to living with disasters of all types, unfortunately. And that experience has provided Marilyn with a unique perspective on life and design. In this episode of the podcast, you will hear about that experience, meeting her business partner, Fred Drake, and crafting their boutique design firm, Demora Drake. Are you subscribing to the podcast? If not, please do, so you get every episode automatically when they're published. You can find Convo by Design everywhere you find your favorite podcasts, and now you can find us on designnetwork.org, a destination dedicated to, uh, to podcasts, all things design and architecture, so make sure to check that out. Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zanger, a fantastic company and an equally fantastic design partner. While the Walker Zanger brand was built on the promise to inspire designers and architects to do their best work, there's far more to it than that. Yes, that promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. But at the heart is a family-owned and operated business that provides stunning surfaces for a well-designed home and does it to make designers and architects do their best work for their clients. Walker Zanger started in 1952, and they are absolutely one of the best trade partners a designer can have. Check out their newest collaborative line with designer Pieta Donovan, a collection of cement and ceramic tiles inspired by the patterns and colorways of the 1970s and created with a comfortable modernity. Walker Zanger is on the cutting edge of design, featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can create. And they provide homeowners with the materials that dream kitchens and baths are made of. Check out any of their 14 showrooms across the country or shop online, walkerzanger.com. It's so funny, too. Um, I have had so many conversations about March 12th. Uh, March Actually, it was, it was March 13th because March 12th, I was doing a design influencer event at a showroom in West Hollywood. And I was supposed to have eight designers there. And I think six came. So two of them were like, I'm a little freaked out. Yeah. I'm, I'm not coming. And I said, you know what? I don't blame you. I, if you don't feel good with it, don't come. It's, it's, and that's before everything really started. And then, you know, it's now, isn't it interesting? Um, I can't really imagine, I know it's gonna happen, but I have this feeling like I can't really imagine when we're gonna get back to live events. You know, so um, that's been the big thing in Kingston because Kingston is a huge music venue, lots of arts, um, especially in the summer, you know, all these massive sort of outdoor design events. Um, and that's been the one thing that all the independent artists are, are, are asking for is when do we start to create COVID's, you know, safe kind of theater and performance spaces? Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting because it also affects you. You know, you had mentioned that you, your first West Coast project and you were about to buy tickets. Now it's interesting because 
you could still travel if you wanted to. I could. I'm, I'm just, you know, so I'm from Haiti and that's where my parents are. And so my thing is, you know, they haven't seen me in a year. Usually I'm in Haiti three, four times a year and they're in their mid seventies. So my thing is if I'm going to get on a plane, I'm getting on a plane for that. And I don't want to risk getting on a plane for anything else because that's my priority. Now I have a really stupid question to ask you. Um, but I'm curious, when did, when did you leave Haiti? Uh, I was eight. You, okay, you were eight, but you, you still have family there. Yep. Yeah, lots of family. So between earthquakes, hurricanes, um, there, there is, there have been, there has been disease there as, as well. This is not, um, it's so funny because, you know, everyone says these are unprecedented times. These are unprecedented times to us, right? Right, because, exactly. Because this is never, it, well, it has happened here before, but it's been a very, very long time since it has. No, um, for sure. Yeah. This, is, this is not totally uncommon in other you know places. What's, yeah, you, you know what, what I tell everybody? So I was in Japan for a couple of months, 10, 15, however long ago, long time ago. And one of the things that surprised me when I got there was that everyone was wearing masks. And I was there to visit a friend, an American, who was working there for a couple of years. And she explained to me that it wasn't that people were sick. It was just that, that, that understanding that we live on a tiny island with a ton of people, millions of millions of people, that when we leave our house, unless we want to have like nonstop colds forever, this is what people do. So there are parts of the world where this is just a common sort of courtesy kind of public health thing that people do. Yeah. And I think it sort of leads into where, where we're going nicely when the idea, the concept, the idea of home has never been to us as, as relevant and purposeful and important as it is right now. And I think the, the level of change in the way people think about the idea of home has changed so dramatically since March 13th. And um, I'm curious, has that changed you as a designer? Um, you know, it's interesting because the working from home thing was the first thing that everybody wanted help with because a lot of people have not worked from home before. Um, oddly enough, I spent the majority of my life working from home. Um, before I became an interior designer, I was a consultant, a business consultant. And very early on, the really major global consulting firms realized that our job as a consultant is to be on the client side, helping them with work. So why do we have these massive buildings you know, on Sixth Avenue in New York City when nobody's supposed to be there? So I've been working from home for 15, 20 years. So that right. part of it was kind of seamless for me because um, while people have always had home offices, they were never as functional as they are today. People had them just, you know, oh, if I happen to be working for the weekend, but for most people, it wasn't like a dedicated every single day thing. Um, the interesting thing that I found is all the play and recreational spaces. So, um, <clears throat> I'm, you know, I moved up here from New York City. So as a designer in New York City, I never did any kind of landscape design. I never even gardened before. And when I moved up here, because I thought, you know, I'd never really lived in the country before. And I thought, oh, I should be growing vegetables, right? Because I live in the country. And so I, you know, I, I started a little vegetable garden and I designed a fence and et cetera. And I'd never done it for anybody else until COVID happened. And I've gotten, you know, we've done a couple of projects right when we were allowed to start construction. That was the first thing. We had like three or four vegetable gardens that people wanted us to do. 
Um, so I feel like it's not just the interiors, but it's just home in terms of, you know, work, but also regeneration. And also this is the primary space where you relax as opposed to having to seek, you know, sort of, um, you know, your fun out, out, out elsewhere. So that's been interesting to see. So while I love talking to designers um, and architects, certainly, I love talking to people like you because you, this is not your first career. Um, you, you came from marketing and PR. Yeah. So it's really interesting, your perspective on things too. And, and I want to sort of back up to something that you said, like you had never sort of, isn't it funny as an interior designer, you will see that threshold between the patio and then everything else. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's like, oh, I can't go there. I'm, yeah. I'm an interior designer. Yeah. Even so, though we're always pulling in color from the exterior to bring into the space, but we don't step out there, right? Oh, of course. It's like yeah. you're like a vampire that's going to melt in the sun <laughs> or explode in the sun, right? Yeah. Um, but it's interesting, too, because that, that is such a line of delineation in the minds of, of many designers. So I'm curious, when, when you mentioned that this is the first time that you're doing it, I, I'm envisioning that it's really opening you up creatively for sure but also i'm curious did it also open you up um from the business side of things did it make you think hey you know what this is potentially a a new revenue source for me um you know i tend to i think partly because i come to the creative process or the creative field late in life and because I was a consultant, we were always taught to kind of look outside the box and come up with creative ideas and things like that. Um, I never thought of myself as an, as an interior designer, though when I went to school, that was what we were taught, interior design, interior architecture. Because to me, I was learning a set of skills that could potentially translate anywhere, right? So when I did my first vegetable garden at home, I you know, took the same principles of interior design and I applied them. Um, and I did the same thing for for clients. And I think that, you know, yes, it's definitely become another revenue stream. The other thing that's happened since COVID, because everybody, everybody is doing everything to their house inside, outside, right? And three years ago, I chose for the very first time colors for the exterior of the house that, that we used for the first Kingston Design Show house. Very scary process because, you know, painting a house is so expensive and it's a mess. It's not like changing a wall color if you hate it. And I kvetched over it and I did it. Um, and everybody liked it. But about maybe three, four months ago, Gardenista published it. And so I'm on my second uh, project doing house colors for exterior people's homes. You know, so I think it's just, you know, just how you approach it. Because at the end of the day, you're learning good design principles, good color theory, and how you translate it is how you, you know, decide to, I guess. I think that is a very pragmatic approach, very logical, very measured. <laughs> at the same time, you know, n- knowing that the industry is changing so rapidly and many designers are just ill-equipped to handle the changes, you know, the business model, if you talk to 10 designers, you're going to get eight different business models. Um, Nature of the beast. (laughs) Right. Well, is it though? I mean, I I kind of feel like it's one of those things, you know, this is my second career too. I came, I came from, from broadcast. Um, The business side of it is far more calculated. Yeah. yeah. And thought through and 
to the point where, you know, certain things like, like tariffs, you know, I saw a lot of designers get caught off guard by the, by the, the tariffs after 20, what, 17, it, like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that this was going to happen. I didn't know my costs were going to go up exponentially. I didn't know that, that delivery times were going to go from, you know, eight to 10 week standards up to 12 to 14 week. I didn't know there were going to be shortages. I, it's understanding those parts of the business where you can sort of see it, not into the future. Well, yeah, into the future, right? Well, can- yeah, no, that's what you're talking about for sure. You know, one of the things, I mean, you're talking about just one of the ba- most basic and biggest challenges in the interior design field, which is that there has never been a framework for pricing strategies. Um, people tend to do it themselves. And understandably, interior design projects, every single one of them looks different. But that does not mean that you have to have a different pricing strategy and fee structure for every single one. And you know, coming from, you know, a corporate background, we have models for that stuff. And we could have it as well as interior design. Part of the problem, I think, is that where those that modeling comes from is, is in the educational system. And because that's not woven into the curriculum for interior design, right? Because, you know, I didn't get those that training when I went to art school. I was required to take courses on financial management. Thank goodness I didn't have to because I came from that background, but that was not something that was a requirement for us to learn. So then once you become a working interior designer, you know, you kind of make it up as you go along. You went to Parsons. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm curious by that. There was no, there was no, financial algebra course there was no business of design course there was no here are the numbers it's it's not that you can't find it but it's not part of the core curriculum Hmm. and if you're a creative person and business management and marketing which are the kind of the two biggest pieces that you need is not part of your curriculum as a creative person you're not going to go looking for that I will because I'm a business person and that's interesting to me but nobody else will and that's the issue. It's not that, that, that it's not there, but if you're going to tell a 20 year old, you know, furniture designer, you know, take all these amazing design classes, it's up to you to, to take all the boring classes. That's not happening. You're so right. Yeah. And here, <laughs> here, here take a math class. It's like, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Um, so to the, uh, to the design house. Yes. This is, so this is your what third, second third, third year, third year, three. Yeah. So, so you so you managed to they got you to come back. How'd they get you to come back? What do you think of design houses? Do you like design houses? Um, so I so I finished up Parsons almost four and a half years ago. So I'm a relatively new designer. And the design show house I started three years ago. I had never participated or been, you know, helped manage a design show house. I had just gone to them. But when I moved up to the Hudson Valley three years ago. Unlike New York, you know, this region is very geographically dispersed, so you don't run into people. You don't happen upon showrooms, right? If you don't know where to find other folks in your design build industry, you're not going to find them. And that's exactly what was happening, mm-hmm. is that the majority of designers, and there's so many new designers that have been moving up to the Hudson Valley in the past five years. We've had an explosion in, in the design community up here. And as more people come they couldn't find each other. And so people were going to the city to find contractors. So, you know, there was no kind of local business sort of support happening as much as it could have been. People were not collaborating because, you know, as an interior designer, I didn't know where the makers were. 
And so the design show house, you know, me being a consultant, right? This would have been a consulting project that somebody would have given me. You know, you know, there are all these creative people up here, figure out why they're not connecting and go create the mechanism for them to connect. So I basically did that kind of research project um, for like a year. I went out and so, you know, told the design events, interviewed all these makers and artists to try and understand, you know, what's happening and where, you know, kind of that link is missing. So I created the show house. Um, in 2018, the first year, and the first year, and this speaks to the, the need um, that people had to connect. The first year, we had about 100 participants, meaning all the people that came together, interior designers, landscape designers, makers, um, you know, paint, local paint stores, wallpaper companies, about 100 of those folks came together um, to create the show house the first year. We had about 10 spaces. And then last year, we had almost 185 participants. So I think that, you know, that connecting was such a huge piece that was missing and people just kind of came in droves because they realized that if they were co-located with someone, you know, collaborating artistically, collaborating on designing a space that naturally created those business relationships. And so the reason, you know, so, so I did the show house the first year as my one-off independent art project. And that's how I, I talked about it to city officials and designers that I would meet. And my goal was to just do it the one time. And after the first year, I thought, oh, this is amazing. I met 100 plus people. They all met 100 plus people. We're good to go. Um, and then, of course, what happened was after the show house ended, all the press started happening. And then my phone started ringing from all the designers saying, oh, when's the next one going to be? And so it kind of, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you you started this. This is your project. See, I didn't, I, yep. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Yep. Yep. It came out of my head one day because it was driving me nuts that there was this little puzzle of all these people who were looking for each other. We're all in the same region, but it wasn't happening. So I just, you know. So, I love this. Tell me, tell me about the math. Tell me about how it came together. Did you just find the, did you find the homeowner? Did you just, you did all your own contracts? How did you put this together? Yeah. So I basically did everything myself um, the first year because one of the things that I found out was that um, there had been two design type show houses, but not kind of the way that, that, you know, show houses are done, meaning that um, they were kind of tied to holiday events. They were not whole, whole room redesigns, you know, they didn't engage all these people. And so a lot of folks up here had not really been to a design show house because um, there hadn't really been one like this up here before I started it. And a lot of people hadn't, didn't even know what the concept was. So it was really, really hard to just get all these people to buy in on something they didn't know. So I did a lot of just driving around, you know, kind of doing the dog and pony show and then developing kind of the structure because it also turns out that there's not a lot of research online on how you develop a design show house because those things are their competitive advantage, right? So I had to create my own contracts. I had to figure out, you know, how to, how to do an application process, how to vet people, how to select people, um, all that stuff. But all that stuff that I did myself the first year, um, last year, when I realized that this was going to be an annual event, um, you know, we now have a board of advisors, um, you know, we have a strategy and development team, all the you know, contracts and plans that I did the first year, we've now templated them. So it's kind of, it's getting a little easier, except of course, COVID, you know, 
took this in a whole other direction this year. But um, yeah, but it's been interesting. So I, I, there's so much to unpack here. I, I, I love this. I love, you know, what new designer, what first year designer would, would ever say, oh, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go create a, a, sh a show house. And I say that having participated and as a producer and putting together my own, um, but having a magazine behind me already, having, you know, sponsors, um, it is so challenging to do. I know Christopher Kennedy, uh, who I worked with on my first design house actually does his own out yeah. here now. And so he's learned how to do it. And I think that there are resources uh, to go to, but there's so few and far between because um, to start from scratch and know all the things that you have to do, it's a little bit daunting. It's, you know, where you, you got to, you got to account for the money side with the sponsors. You got to account for the legal side with the contracts. Yeah. You've got to account for insurance. You've got to account for insurance for slip and falls if people walk through on this, you know, because it happens. Yeah, no, for There's, sure. And and then the designers too. You have to work with other designers and manage you, creative people. Which which was the one piece out of all of everything you're saying. The one piece because all of the rest of it, by the way, that's like Tuesday for me in corporate America, right? This is what I do for a living. Um, and, and especially, you know, I only ever worked in, in the big global consulting firms. So I would manage teams of 30 across four different countries and time zones, you know. Um, so I'm a very structured kind of plan, Excel spreadsheet. I can do all that stuff. The managing the creative people, um, having never managed anybody except for very regimented, very structured sort of type A personality folks was the most incredibly challenging thing I, I can't even, I mean, it still is, you know, creative I'm, types. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a very different, it's opened me up in a lot of ways, actually as an interior designer, like if anything about the show house, that's probably been it because I'm very corporate. I'm very professional. I very much have a sort of, you know, I don't mix business and pleasure and, um, you know, to have creative folks kind of fall apart and cry because they're stressed out because they don't know if their space is going to come together. Um, and sort of having to relate emotionally, you know, to, you know, what I consider sort of like, you know, business issues, right? And, and having to figure out how to, how to speak differently and how to understand differently what people are saying. That's been really interesting. Yeah. And, you know, as far as project management, um, if you're practiced at it, it may, it all makes sense. These are building blocks. It, it, they're no different from any other major project. It will yeah. all fit together if you know how to, if you know how to do that. The one thing you mentioned that you really can't account for is crisis management. So, yeah. which what, by the way, I did that for four years too. Crisis management. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's also related to PR. So I was a marketing PR person at one okay. point. I wound up doing crisis management as well. Uh, sure. Yeah. So how did you how did you pivot on this? First of all, when was when was the design done? When was it supposed to open? Um, for which year? This year. Uh, so this year we're opening November 27th. Oh, say, it didn't change. Um, well, so the show house, traditionally, we've always opened Columbus Day weekend. Okay. So 2018, 2019, um, Columbus Day weekend up in the Hudson Valley is a massive, huge weekend. There are two other really big design events, O Positive and Field and Supply. So there's lots of makers, lots of music. Um, so we've always done it that weekend. This is the first year that we've changed the date. Um, 
partly because of COVID, because we wanted to give the designers more time than traditionally we would because we're managing the numbers in the house, but also because of COVID and what's happened in the real estate market up here, which has been an explosion of um, you know, people buying homes, people buying land. I have a design construction firm. So we actually build houses from the ground up. So we're experiencing oh, wow. that in real time. Um, so the contractors this year, instead of me strategically picking a date, right, which is what you do in marketing, the contractors actually picked the date this year of the show house because it was basically their availability. So we're opening from the 27th to the 13th this year, which is at a, in about a month. Um, and we're going to open in real life. We're going to do controlled uh, time tours. And then we're also looking at doing virtu virtu virtual tour. So how, how do you decide, are you just following state guidelines as far as how many you can have in the house? Yeah. So we're following state guidelines, um, the city of Kingston. And the only reason why I would ever even have done in real life is specifically because the city of Kingston, we've had very manageable you know, numbers from the very beginning and they've been very good about keeping those numbers low. People just walking around on the street are, you know, the majority are wearing masks, not just when they go into a store, for example. So because we've, you know, the city has been so good, you know, restaurants are open, um, gyms are open and the numbers are staying where they need to be. Um, so yeah. It's funny because that opens up a, a, a totally con different conversation that we can have for another day. But I, I am curious as to one thing. When, you're doing this now dual path between live and virtual. The virtual part of it is really the part that, you know, and I've, I've been talking to design houses from LA to New York and the virtual part of it is just one that, that um, organizers can't seem to really grasp. And I'm curious how you approach that and what you're doing for that. Um, I mean, stay tuned. <laughs> we'll find out. You know, okay. I mean, the virtual tour is something that we would not have done this year. Um, you know, for I think for for well, for the majority of most industries, companies have done much more online than they probably expected to do. They probably accelerated their social media strategies, right? Because we're all that's all we could do. Um, so I think everybody's kind of just figuring it out and trying to quickly learn lessons learned from other. Um, you know, companies who are doing it. So we've been looking at other virtual tours that show houses have done, other in real life tours that show houses have done, um, getting a sense of what they're doing in terms of processes and features and keeping people safe. And we're trying to kind of learn as quickly as we can so we can implement those pieces. So yeah, but, but I mean, what it's going to look like, you know, our hope is that it's a vir virtual tour for people who either can't come or who people who live in the area who don't feel safe coming because we want to be sensitive to that as well to have a tour that gives them provides them enough value so we're going to 3d map the rooms is our intent and then also provide people the opportunity to click on different items um, and get some more information because, of course, one of the things that happens when you come through a show house is you have your booklet, you see who the makers are, you know, all that information so you can follow up if you want. So we're trying to provide the same value that you'd get in real life. But I think that, you know, I'd love to see what virtual tours look like next year for show houses. Like, I hope that people don't abandon them. I don't think they will. There's so much set up, to, you know, to do to create one. And I think that we're going to find new ways to provide value that's specific to virtual tours that maybe we don't even imagine now because um, we've been so focused on, you know, physically coming to houses.
Well, the other thing too is, and I, I would love for you to think about this is again, back to what we were talking about before, as far as business models, this now opens up your design house to people from anywhere else in the world. Yeah. And yeah. for a marketer, that's kind of like the aha yeah. moment where it's like, wait yeah. a minute, you know, if I yeah. can figure out how to do this right, the only, the only challenge now is figuring out technologically, you know, one of my things with design houses, and I, I want to actually pivot to, to your space, but I will tell you one of the things that I love most about design houses is what designers do with the spaces that you can only experience when you're there. Mm-hmm. The little Easter eggs, you know, the little touches in the in the far corner, the yeah, yeah, yeah. the the things in the cabinetry that you can't see, but you open it up, it's like, oh my gosh, look what they did, <laughs> you know. It's certain things like that. That's really what excites me, and that is the one thing that you do miss. But that's also the same thing that you miss when the magazines publish them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the trick, right? I th- I think that you know, virtual tours, just like virtual classrooms, you know, this is all brand new. There are other countries that I've been kind of doing that um, for longer, but this is brand new in this country. We haven't really done that um, in this sophisticated way that we're attempting to these days. And I think that what's going to happen is at a certain point, the evolution is that we're going to figure out what content works best virtually, what content works best in print, what content really demands that the person be there and have a 360 kind of experience in real life. I think that that's just what happens with evolution, right? And I think we'll slowly kind of figure it out. But thank goodness for those pioneers, show house tours that have done it. Because <coughs> that's kind of how, you know, we're kind of figuring out what, what to do ourselves. So true. So let me ask you something, your, your space this year, how do you separate yourself from the organizer and the designer? Um, that's a good question. So I, as far as I know, I am the only show house developer that also always does a room in their own show house. And it's something that from the very beginning was a no brainer for me because the, the reason why I was doing it and the reason why I was inviting other people to do it was to meet everybody. So it would have been the point of me not having that experience myself. Um, After the first year, I thought about it. I thought, huh, is it really weird? Is it odd? Is it self-serving, et cetera? But at the end of the day, what a design show house is, is your opportunity as an interior designer to create your vision, your point of view, your perspective, um, you know, 100%. And I think that, you know, that's what it is. It isn't about sort of anything else, really. So I appreciate the fact that once a year, I get to have that opportunity. Tell me about your space this year. So this year, we are, we are taking over the dining room of the Design Show House. The Design Show House is a beautiful um, turn-of-the-century Gothic mansion that sits kind of up on a hill. It's got a, the most amazing view of the Hudson River. But the dining room is the one room that doesn't have the massive tin ceilings, you know, the, the, the foot high sort of baseboard moldings. And I, and, you know, so that happens, right? Like stuff gets removed. And so instead I thought, instead of trying to create all of that, let's take this and make it a functional space. And then I also wanted to really contextualize it in the space, you know, in the time that we're living in. So it's going to be a combination homeroom and home classroom, because one of the things that's important to me is to kind of rethink how we separate spaces, right? Like, like, 
we always automatically assume we have to separate space by age and, and generation. When in fact, this is a workspace. This is a workspace that we should be able to create that's energizing, that's creatively you know, inspiring for multiple generations. Um, especially because most people don't have the kind of spaces where they can dedicate home office space and classroom space, right? So let's think about the reality of what we're living in. Um, and then the other piece of it is we're creating a custom furniture piece um, for the home classroom, a custom chair desk situation, and specifically to respond to people's needs for the fact that going forward two, three days a week, these kids are going to be learning at home for who knows how long. And most people, you know, have a temporary setup where they, you know, where it's like, here's a corner of the dining room for three days. That lack of structure is not helping children who already have a lot of lack of structure to deal with. So to be able to create a little, you know, thing that's, that's a piece of furniture, that's a complete unit so that it can be there when you need it. It can fold up and disappear and be put in a closet or somewhere when you don't need it begins to speak to kind of that long-term sort of fungibility of spaces, which I think, you know, the Japanese do that so well because they live in, in tiny little spaces. And I think we need to start thinking about how we begin to live part of that lifestyle, um, you know, going forward. So, yeah. And then the last piece of it, because of course there's like layers and layers of this, because this is my chance to be kind of, you know, just more artistic, um, is also the diversity and inclusion. Because you know, having a multi-generational space begins to speak to that, right? Because we always think about inclusion in terms of race and religion and, and everything else, but we don't think about generationally and kind of the importance of that cross-pollination, right? Um, but in terms of referencing inclusion for all on a broader kind of political spectrum, we're bringing in um, some interesting artwork, including um, Harlem Toile wallpaper by Sheila Bridges, which is kind of an iconic sort of inclusionary sort of, you know, looking at history and, and, and trying to, to, to kind of reimagine that. Um, and that, that wallpaper is going to wrap our room. And then we have other artworks, including some custom pieces that begin to speak to sort of, let's think about the education and the history that we've been offered. And here's a, another way to look at it. Uh, backing up just a second, I want to talk about the diversity issue because I think it's very important. I also just sort of wanted to back up one second. The dining room. Mm -hmm. As the organizer, as a designer, do you kind of just have to get what's left or do you actively select your room because it is your project? Well, we have a we have a committee, so it's not like the first year I just picked everybody because it was just me. <laughs> but right. after that, you know, so, so now, it, you know, it's running more like a real structured house. So we have an application process um, every year and we have a deadline and then we have a selection committee. Where we actually review them and we review them, you know, under various categories. So, for example, you know, every year we have a mix of very established interior designers. Um, but establish in a different way than I think traditional show houses think. Um, you know, one of the things that I find about show houses, though I love to go see them, is the uniformity of the participants year after year. You know, I, I can always expect to see the same sort of five people. And I love their work, but, you know, it is what it is. 
Um, so when I when so when we think about established designers, we're looking for people with a very unique, specific point of view, a very individualistic aesthetic. And if you look at the photos from the past two years, they look like no other show house you've ever seen, because we're doing a very, very different focus on art and design and the making aspect. And that's reflected in our spaces. It isn't just about showcasing kind of the trend of the year. Um, but we also always leave a couple of spots for junior designers. And that speaks to the inclusion and diversity because, you know, I'm, I'm a designer of four years. You know, nobody told me I couldn't do a show house. Why is it that we're limiting people's creativity by their experience? And so every year we have a couple of junior designers, you know, people who've been in the industry for five or fewer years um, who have the talent and who are only not being allowed because of their age or of their years in the industry. And so we, we have a whole host of, of criteria um, and, my, and I kind of fall into that, right? So I don't just kind of pick my room. Um, so once we select the designers, we, we select spaces partly based on if somebody has a real vision for a space and sometimes that will happen. People will come and say, oh my God, I have this and I wanna do this. And you're like, oh my God, you should totally be doing that. Or we look and we provide spaces for people where they can really shine. Meaning that if you're not a kitchen designer, you're not going to get a kitchen. Um, you know, if you're a junior designer, we're not going to give you a room that's going to overwhelm you. You know, so, so we make those decisions very strategically. The diversity topic I think is, is fascinating because something that you mentioned it's it's important that all of these stakeholders are represented, but I think it's so easy to forget. You know, you you've got race, you've got religion, you've got age. the 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 age and demography of of you know and the concept of those who are working on the space as well as those who would be living in the space. How do you? How do you approach diversity? Because diversity is one of those things where if you let it, it can completely consume and overwhelm you. Well, you know, you're kind of asking the wrong person. You know, the very nature that I'm black, it's, it's just the mindset that I come that's, from. That's not what I'm, diversity. I'm sorry, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about um, you as a show organizer Oh no, but it's all the same. Is it? Like it's all it's all related. Meaning the minute that I'm a marginalized person, my brain focuses on that. Meaning that I'm always thinking about the younger generation. I'm always thinking about the old generation. I'm always thinking about new entrants. I'm always thinking about established people. I have a, a point of view, a worldview that comes from where I'm from and it impacts everything. The same way it does for all, all human beings. Like I, I don't separate that. If I weren't who I was, I might not have you know, I mean, the, if you look at the show house, there's diversity on so many levels. So for example, one of the other things that I did was the show house is not limited to interior designers because what is that but a label? What we are looking for is people with a, with a passion for design and a unique point of view and aesthetic. So in the past, we've had product designers, graphic designers, um, we've had set designers for movies. And to me, it's very interesting to see how these different disciplines interpret spaces and how we all learn from each other that way. Because there's a lot of cross-pollination that happens that way. And I think that the more that we have these boxes that define us, meaning like, you know, now I do garden design, now I choose how, you know, paint color freaks for the exterior of houses. I think that diversity 
comes from who you are and where you are. And I think that if you don't come from a diverse place, that's where the work needs to happen. That's why I'm saying it's a hard question for me to answer because I, I don't see, see anything any other way besides that. Well, and I guess what's interesting for me is one of the things that I've learned uh, over time is that when it comes to diversity and, and tr- inclusion for those that have been marginalized and, not re- and underrepresented or not represented at all, there's always so funny. There's always someone who says, well, wait a minute, what about me? Um, I, did a, um, I did a panel at the West Edge Design Fair last year, and I really, I struggled with, with it because um, I'd never done it before. It was called Design Diversity, Crafting Our World the Way It Should Be. And I had four faces of color, um, no moderator. Uh, I was in the audience asking questions, but it was just them on stage. Mm-hmm. And the idea was to have a conversation in, in a public forum at a design focused event, just talking about the idea of diversity in design. And it was funny, the first question, the first question that was asked was, I see that you're, you're doing this, that's great, but why don't you have more of them? Mm-hmm. Great question. Um, and it's, it's got to start somewhere. And I feel like what, you know, one of the things that keeps, there's, it seems to me like there's two reasons people don't have uh, the conversation. One is because they're blind to it. Um, and this actually started because years ago at, a, at an event in New York, someone brought up the, the idea of diversity in design. And one of the es- established uh, designers said, well, is, this really isn't the time or place to have that conversation. It's like, well, wait a minute. If not now, then when? And if not us, then who, right? Mm-hmm. It, is the, it is the time and place. You should always have the conversation. Well, also because as creative people, we don't live in a vacuum. We right. are literally the people who need to live in a diverse environment because that's how we get our inspiration. Yeah. So since that's, in, since that's embedded in our practice, that should be the basic conversation that we're always having. Totally agree. Yeah, no, it's, it, and isn't it funny too, if you ask it, it, nine out of 10 designers, when you ask them their source of infra- inspiration, they'll say travel. Yeah, well, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the problem is, is when you come back from your travels, yeah. are you acknowledging where stuff is coming from? Yeah. You know? Yeah, and, and it's interesting. This is, you know, this conversation would take far too long. I, I would totally, <laughs> I would totally derail this. But I think one of the, one of the, um, one of the things that we're going to start to experience is cultural appropriation in design. We've oh, seen we've seen yeah. it in fashion. I think it's it already exists, but I think oh, it's people, been existing in design forever. Totally yeah. get it, but I think that people are going to start to become aware of it. Like you know, not it's like the Matrix, not knowing what your surrounding <laughs> was until until you're within it. And you, I don't mean to make light of it, but sometimes you don't see the forest for the trees, it, yeah. and all of a sudden people are going to start to understand. Say, wait a minute, where where did that textile? Yeah, come from. you know, one of the things that I would love to see go away because the design industry invented this word, this term, global design. Mm. And global design is a term that's the biggest appropriative term I can think of because what it does is it is it gives you an umbrella where now you feel completely justified in not going and finding out what it is because it's already been defined for you. And that's something that was done very strategically and can be undone whenever they want to, to undo it. Like, why are we talking about global design? What, that, that means nothing, first of all. Where is it from? So, and to understand the idea behind the point, um, I think it's not a matter of you can't use this because it's, it's you know, cultural appropriation. 
I think it's important to say, if you're going to use it, understand what it is. Understand. And use the the appropriate language. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I totally agree. Um, Shifting back to the design house for a second. I want to, I want to give your, give your partners a little bit of love. So how did you, one of the biggest challenges design, design house organizers come across is the sponsorship side of things. And it's really interesting because I, I, I'm really interested in, in your experience as a young designer, you didn't have the chance to necessarily build those relationships, but as a marketer, you understood how to expedite the process. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of reasons why I did the Design Show House. Um, A lot of market-facing reasons, right? Because the environment had to be right. There had to be a body of of creative people here who were exploring and wanting to do more. Um, There had to be an environment conducive to that. And one of the things that's very conducive to sponsorships and making those connections is we have... Kingston, the Hudson Valley is very community driven. Um, We have a number of family owned businesses up here that have been here for over 100 years. I I mean, I can count four off the top of my head, which is something that across the United States you don't see still. But so we so there's a deep sort of longstanding community here that is very supportive of each other. So one of the things that I did was I went to those local businesses because we have a symbiotic relationship. So there's a you know, there's a great um, <clears throat> design build company called Herzog's and Herzog's, they have a number of locations around the Hudson Valley, but they have Benjamin Moore paint. They have, you know, wood, you know, stone material for landscaping, etc. They have a need to connect with us. We have a need to connect with them. Um, so that was kind of the first route was looking at, at the design build kind of local institutional companies. Um, and, you know, from year to year, they've continued with us and they've continued to make, you know, more and more investments every year, which has been amazing to see. And I think that those local businesses is what eventually kind of helped us to get the bigger sponsorships. So like, for example, this year, our national media sponsors Cherish. Um, but I think that the building blocks starting with the local businesses here really kind of gave us that validity. Who did you use in your space? Um, for who did you specify? Did you memo anything? Um, did you did you uh, you mentioned the the Sheila Bridges? Uh, oh yes, yes. Oh, for my space this year. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's see. So we have that. Um, there is. Um, what is it called? I'm sorry. What is the? What oh, is the it's called Harlem Toile. Okay. Yeah. And let's see, there's a lovely company uh, called DBO Home that's in the tri-state area. Um, They're furniture, small furniture design um, making company. Let's see who else. We have some custom work. Um, There's this muralist called Rowan Willigan. She's up here in the Hudson Valley. But like a lot of Hudson Valley creatives, she's a muralist. She's a photographer. She's a graphic designer, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And she is creating custom artwork based on inspiration that I had that comes from an artist um, who also happens to be a Catholic nun called Corita Kent. She's no longer living, but if you're in California, you probably know her because she spent her life um, chairing the art department. Um, I believe it's School of the Immaculate Heart. Okay. Um, she's, a, she's a pop artist. 
and she's all about social justice. Um, I used to live in Boston. There's a big, massive rainbow, like on the side of this like water tower. You know, all of her iconographic pop art is based on kind of love and peace. But she's a very subversive person. And she had a lot to say about diversity. She had a lot to say about inclusion. Um, she really was one of the pioneers in the 60s of printmaking because she wanted to have art be affordable. So we're kind of being inspired by that and doing, you know, sort of a, a riff on one of her iconic pieces. So, so again, that thread through of these are people who inspired other people, but have been left out of the conversation. I love that. Okay, so the the house is the show house is going to be opening shortly um if you're in if you're in the area you can still buy tickets yes yeah, so we actually are relaunching our website um this weekend because of the virtual tour features and we're doing a whole bunch more more stuff in terms of ticket sales online so our website is kingstondesignconnection.com and it's the same name on instagram and facebook and so this year because we're doing mandatory rsvp and scheduling people to come through um, people have to go online and purchase tickets and you know pick a time frame and so as soon as, as we relaunch that this weekend, people can start going right away and purchasing tickets. And we're going to be open from the 27th to December 13th. Um, so we're going to be open all those three weekends in a row. And then the virtual tour will kind of launch at some point during that. So when, when somebody listens to this after the show house has closed, will they still be able to participate in the, the virtual Side yeah. Of so, so we expect that the virtual tour will live on after the physical show house does. Yeah. Can you still monetize that? I don't know. These are all open questions. You know, one of the things about the design show house, you know, because this was an independent art project and from the first year to last year, the growth was unreal. So the first year we had about 450 attendees. Last year we had over a thousand. It's just been like mushrooming at a very rapid scale. This was never for me um, a business. This was for me just a community service of connecting us. And of course it has business benefits because now you're meeting people in your industry, but it was never sort of a financial thing for me. Now that it's taken on a life of its own, now it actually needs its own sort of food, right? It needs its own money. <laughs> so one of the things that, you know, we're having those conversations now is this is an independent organization at this point. And, you know, so we're going to formally have a legal structure and, you know, start thinking about revenues and lines of income and all that good stuff. <laughs> you know, it's funny, though, you say that, but at the same time, you know, there's a reason for, for the phrase starving artist. And... It's one of those things where, from the business side, I really do, um, I really do love that the business is getting smarter. The business is getting more intelligent about it's. It's getting more educated about the business side of things. Um, traditionally, the creators are like, "Well, I just want to create something beautiful. I just, I just want to make something for me," and that's admirable. It really is to make the world a better place. It absolutely is. But in order to sustain that, in order to do it at a bigger level, in order to do it for longer, put on your mask first. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. No, for sure. You know, one of the things, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to say this is really bad advice, but this is just my perspective. Um, whenever I meet young artists, I say to them, look, if you don't have a clear vision for your art right now, go get a corporate job. Go figure out how to do marketing, how to do business management, because unfortunately, art is the one job where nobody manages it for you. 
right? If you're a nurse, you have a hospital administration that manages your career for you. If you're a business person, you have HR. Nobody does that for artists. You're an independent company onto yourself, whether or not you admit that or not. And so I always say to young designers, if you can wait, if you don't have a clear vision, do your art, but go get financial management marketing training. Because at that point, what you come out with, because how many amazing artists are never seen because the structure wasn't there? Totally. I, I think that is spectacular advice. I think it's great. You know, so many years in broadcasting, I would get people who came to me all the time as a, as a podcast producer. I would, I would get people who came to me all the time when I was at Playboy, you know, p producing and, and as the general manager, I would have people saying, I want a show. It's like, well, what do you want your show to be about? Oh, I don't, I want to be the, whatever they are, Howard Stern. I want to be whatever they are, Rush Limbaugh or whoever, you know, whatever their favorite host was. That's what they wanted to be. And that's what, well, just crack the mic and talk. It's the same thing. It's like, no, you, you can't do that. You should not be doing this. You may have a wonderful gift to be an artist, to, 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 to talk, to, to be creative. But unless you understand how to operate and how to control that creativity in a way that it can, it can benefit you and others, wait for a while, go get some other skills that will enable you to do that. I know. I think that's great advice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know how often it's followed, but you know, it's definitely worked in my case and I've seen it worked in other folks who have made that transition, who had that kind of business background. And, you know, that stepping stone is massive to have, you know, I mean, my ability to even imagine I could do a show house was based on my sort of, you know, understanding of my skills and my appreciation of my skills. But also I think, you know, having a show house that's three years old, you know, this year was the first year we actually got some people from overseas who applied for the show house, like, you know, stuff like that. I think the marketing and PR and having that base is instrumental to having that kind of a success, you know? Totally agree. Um, Marilyn, this is so great. I so appreciate your time today. This was wonderful. You're fantastic. One of these days, I would love to make it out there and see the Yeah, design. absolutely. And, and I, well, we'll see if I ever have a client in California again. <laughs> I can see you too. <laughs> I would love that. That'd be great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a wonderful weekend. Thank you, Maryline. Thank you, Walker Zanger and Thermosol for your partnership. Thank you for listening. Without you, there is just no joy in doing this. You are so greatly appreciated. My hope is to bring you inspiration and sublime design through these conversations to give you that extra push to be the most creative designer you can possibly be. Please make sure you are subscribing to the show so you don't miss a single episode. You can also find us on Instagram at Convo by Design with an X and ConvoByDesign.com. Be well. And remember to take today first. Mm -hmm.